Thank you for leading that song just now. My prayer is that when we get to the end of Psalm 26, that we have gloried in our Redeemer this morning. So it's good to be with you. A few months ago, Jonathan messaged me something along the lines of, I'm taking this vacation, I'm going to be flying in on Saturday, that's a little tight, something could happen, maybe I should get pulpit supply And sure enough, I think they're still trying to get home. Something happened. So, um, Lord willing, we'll see Jonathan on the pulpit next week. I hope they've had a good vacation. I I guess it involves some planes. I hope a palm tree or something. I hope you got some rest. So for today, our goal is the 26th Psalm. So if you'll turn there, the reason why, if you'll go to the archives on our website, We've made it to Psalm 25, so here we are. We're going to do the 26th. Not any more complicated than that, so if there's any objections, it's way too late. That's where we're going. So let's spend some time in it. Let's see what the Lord might have for us this morning. Um, I want to give a couple contextual things before we start. First off, let's just look at it just literary, just for a second. You're going to see 12 verses you're going to see bookends. So you're going to see a beginning, and you're going to see an end that are going to be very quite similar. They reflect each other. You're going to see this plea for redemption. You're going to see this talk of integrity. That's our bookends. And then you're going to see this middle section. This middle section will be packed with three proofs or three evidences that we are in the faith or that we are regenerated or that David belongs to God. So that's kind of the structure of what this psalm looks like. Secondly, context. Not exactly sure. But if you look at this psalm, there's stress. There is stress in the psalm, and it's stress with people. It's external to David. It's the people he's surrounded with, living with, competing with. But there is certainly a stress, but there's also a confidence So as we unpack it, I want you to see this tension of stress. But beyond the stress is this incredible, satisfying confidence. Spurgeon, he thought perhaps the context might have been during the reign of Ishbosheth. Remember that name, Ishbosheth? Who's the first king of Israel? Easy, right? Saul. Who's the second king? David, right? Technically, Ishbosheth. We don't read about that very much, just for two years. But Saul's son Ishbosheth became king of Israel. David was immediately anointed by Samuel in Hebron. Okay, Jerusalem really was of no significance back then. Hebron in Judah. So there was this tension in the kingdom. David had not consolidated it yet, he was not king over Israel. So maybe it was during there. That, that's what Spurgeon thinks. Matthew Henry, he takes it even back further than that. He thinks maybe it was during the reign of Saul, uh, of Saul that David was experienced this stress. Because remember, David with integrity was serving Saul, yet Saul wanted his life. And so maybe it was during that context, but we don't know for sure. But when you, I just, these are speculations, but I think they're helpful to try to understand where the psalmist might be at this point in time. But it's at a time of stress with people who are against him. So join me. Let's, 
Let's dive in. Psalm 26, starting in verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house in the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. We're going to dive into the psalm a little chronologically, except the bookends. So verse 1 and the end, we're going to save that to the end. So I promise we'll get back there. But we're actually going to go ahead and jump into verse 2. So right into the meat, right into the proofs. Immediately when you look at verse 2, take a look. Your eyes open just a little bit. Does your eyebrows raise just a little bit? Mine did. It's like, oh, what am I reading here? Because we read the statement, prove me, or try me, or test me. Doesn't this sound a little bit odd? So the psalmist has put forth a request for examination. Check your notes. That's our first blank, examination. He's put forth a request for examination. Does it make you shake just a little? Don't we dread, aren't we fearful of the idea of God looking down on us and judging us? Like, now, I think often we get thrown in this temptation of just putting that whole idea off, maybe like to where 100 years old, you know, not even reasonable, to where 100 years old kind of feels good to think, well, I'm going to get judged in the future. And, and maybe there's a change at that point in my life, or at least a good chance. I'll, I'll be better. I'll have my, my stuff in order, or at least if I never got it together, I'll be so far removed from that old cinnamon that maybe it just doesn't matter much anymore. My current thought problems, my lust, my desires, that temper thing I had the other day, that anger. Won't those be gone when I'm 100? You know, I don't want to deal with those now. I'm afraid the scripture doesn't let us off the hooks. It invites us and tells us, it even requires us to invite God to judge us and prove us in the ouch, in the here and now. So that brings an urgency. Examine us now, dear God. That is where David is. That is where the psalmist is. That is where we should pray and we should strive in our walk in godliness that we might be like David. And asking the Lord at any given time to prove us, to test us, to examine me now. And dear Lord, you will find that my heart, our hearts, are reflective of you. 
that they reflect your beautiful character, that our lives reflect your attributes. When you created mankind in the garden and in your image, that we are showing your likeness in our lives. Verse 2, the confidence of David's faith, his walk of his likeness to God. Let's do this in New Testament terms now. His Christ-likeness. Before we even get started into the depth and complexity and beauty of this psalm, we immediately are challenged to present ourselves to God as prepared to be proved or judged. Are we trusting in Christ for righteousness? That's where that brings us, doesn't it? Don't you see it? Are we trusting in Christ for that righteousness? I don't want to trust in myself. We're trusting in Christ. Are we trusting that he lived a perfect life of perfect obedience to God's word and his design, an effort that mankind, me and you, we've tried over and over and over. We failed and failed and failed. Yet if you read about this man, read the accounts of his life in the Bible, read the impact of his life throughout history. If you're willing to admit that this man, he died and now the tomb is empty. Why? Because he's the God man. He's not handcuffed by death. He's actually the author of all that has life In its vein, this man who had and has a historical name, that being Jesus of Nazareth, he died for your sin. Some thoughts on sin. It's that thing that we all all sense. We're aware of no matter our background, no matter our culture. Doesn't matter. We know. Doesn't matter the century we either lived in now or lived in the past. We know this or anything else that we think might be unique about us. It's that thing where we personally fail to live up to God's moral perfection, to live up to that extraordinary creation that God created you, he created me, to be extraordinary. But we didn't live up to it. He mysteriously gave us this free will, and tragically we chose self rather than to give glory to God. We challenged the reality of God and to make ourselves his adversary and rival, But in light of this tragedy, God chose not to destroy us. Our deserved place. But he chose to save us through the means of punishing his son Jesus in our place. So let me propose that it is through the son that we might invite God. We might invite the God of the universe to judge us, to prove us, to test us as Psalm 26 invites Because only being united and being considered one with this man might we prove to be innocent, or shall I say forgiven, because of how he lived and how he died. John Calvin says, apart from Christ, we are hated by God. And he only begins to love us when we are united to the body of his beloved son. It is an invaluable privilege of faith that we know that Christ was loved by the Father on our account that we might be made partners of the same love and might enjoy it forever. Close quotes. So any day of the week, any week of the year, the redeemed, the church, the Christians, might be proved or regarded by the God of the universe as innocent, as forgiven, and completely pure before his sight because of Christ. And yes, we can join David here. We can join David and say, we can stand 
with integrity before the Lord. Doesn't that feel good? Oh, that feels so good. What a glorious truth. So if there's nothing else, if I've, if I've already belabored the point, don't hear anything else today, let it be known, believer, if you're a believer in Christ, you don't stand condemned before the Father. That you stand proven, that you stand innocent before Him. And you stand as an heir to His kingdom. So as the psalm moves along, that moves us to the first proof. How do we know? How do we know we're in Christ? How do we know we're regenerated? What was, what was David thinking? Well, he, he, he gives us our, his thinking right here. The first proof of regeneration is inner purity. Back to your notes, inner purity. Verse 2 and 3. The psalm puts forth... The first evidence as the inner man, it's personal. It references, shall I say, your inner life or your thought life. As we can pretend, here we go, when no one else is in the room, when no one else is even in the house, what and where does your mind have the freedom to go? Is it to the Lord and His holiness? Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Let me repeat. When we're in that room, when no one else is there, where is our mind going? Is it to the Lord? Are we reveling in him? Perhaps not. Could it be that we still struggle in our sin? Do we go to unholiness and personal impurities? Yet, David here, he gives us the goal. He gives us the answer. The answer is, what is our goal? A fixation or an infatuation with the steadfast love of the Lord. He calls this fixation and the steadfast love is having it before my eyes. Check verse 3. Before my eyes. What is before his eyes? The steadfast love of the Lord. Let's unpack that just for a second. It's very easy. What does steadfast mean? Un changing, unwavering. Might we say doctrinally that God is an immutable. God does not change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. If you thought about it this way, if what if God changed? Okay. Would He be God? Because as a thought goes, if something else is powerful enough to make God change, then who's all powerful? It's, it's not God. It's that thing, right? No, who is God? If there is a God that can create the universe by speaking it into being, He's eternal, which we can't understand. We are created. Matter is created. That thing is God, and it is all powerful. Oh, and it's all wise. Must be. And oh, thank the heavens that He is all perfect and He is all love. He revealed Himself to us, made Himself known to us, and made Himself known as what? The God who loves us deeply. No, it's nothing in and of ourselves. Absolutely, friend. It is all in His Son, Jesus, but we can be identified with Jesus and He's invited us to be a part of that. So what is it? Steadfast love. It's unchanging as love. And what is that love? 
We have lots of misunderstandings of love, but in this context, what is before David's vision here? It is the vision of Christ who loves you so much. This God loves you incredibly. So much that He spilt the blood of His Son in your place. He sacrificed His Son. That's the love that's before David's eyes here. The steadfast love of the Lord. Sacrificial. Having this before our eyes is a motivating factor for our inner purity. Is it not? It should be. But what else is it in David's eyes here? It's a confirming factor. Are we in Christ? Do we belong to God? Do we belong in his inheritance? How are we confirming this? One question you can ask yourself, friend, is the steadfast love of the Lord, is it before my eyes? A confirming factor. And if it is, guess what? There's a promise in Scripture that nothing can separate us from his love. The second evidence of regeneration in Christ is our outward or social purity. Back to your notes. Outward or social purity. Verse 4 and 5. You're going to see four words here. You can pick them out. Take a, take a glance. Falsehood. Hypocrite. Evildoer. Wicked. It's really the same. Same person, right? So, if you look at it confusingly, how should we as redeemed people of God who... We're also to be a light in the world, right? Matthew 5, 16. How are we to relate, to interact? Are we to flee and withdraw? What about to evangelize? How do we understand this in in the context of Psalms 26? Well, let's consider a few things. We're going to fast forward to Christ here, Matthew 9. So Jesus was not only conversing here with the eventual Apostle Matthew, but also many others in Matthew's orbit. Who, what was his orbit back then? Tax collectors and sinners. Notice Jesus definitely reach, reached out, the temp, out to them. He definitely engaged them. He definitely called them to himself as Matthew is the ultimate example. He became an apostle. But you will honestly notice he never engaged or joined in their previous lifestyle of sin. Nor did he endorse or join a future lifestyle of sin with them. He engaged them in a meaningful way, in an intimate way, in a personal way, with time and his personal presence. But he never engaged nor endorsed their sin. In fact, let's do the exact opposite of Matthew. This would be how he handled the who? The hypocrites. A lot of ink spilt in the New Testament on hypocrites from the words of of Jesus. He considered... People of, of those four words, falsehood, hypocrite, evildoer, wicked, to be described in Matthew 23 as dead bones. We should not live, be living our lives in their model. We should not look like them. We should not particularly enjoy them. Paul famously wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that bad company ruins good morals. And what John wrote about the church in Ephesus. So he's writing the vision, Revelation chapter 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. 
and Paul in 2 Timothy. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For peoples will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. They look godly, but they're not. They're all these other things. They deny its power. Avoid such people. And if we can't, one more appeal. If we're not going to hear it from John, if we're not going to hear it from Paul, if we're not going to hear it from Jesus, then uh, we're in the Psalms today. Psalm 1, 1. First chapter, first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we might enjoy the opportunity to see such people soften to the gospel of Christ where they're changed as Jesus did with this tax collector and perhaps the tax collector's friends, even that whole group, but otherwise we're really only to engage as it is useful in initiating change in their lives. We often call this contemporarily intentionality. Intentionality. If this might clearly not be the case in these interactions with them, as they may not be like Matthew, Matthew had this responsiveness. He had this softening to the gospel. Then we should actually now, at some point, do the opposite, which would be to avoid them. The avoidance of such people, as David in Psalm 26 attests, it's, it's actually a testimony to who we are in Christ. It is a testimony to our regeneration. It is a testimony to our salvation. That is our second testimony. Purity and worship. Your next note, purity and worship. That's our third proof of regeneration. This is verse 6 through 8. David here is reveling in the altar. He's reveling in the verbal proclamation in thanksgiving. He revels in the testimony of the wondrous deeds of the Lord. That's verse 7. And finally, in his love for the house of the Lord. That's verse 8. In this Old Testament setting, so back then, David not only responds in worship to the physical types and shadows of the presence of God, that would be the, like the tabernacle, but equally exalts the community of saints, the gathering in this setting. He saw that it was particularly important to gather, to celebrate the Lord, to do it corporately, and to do it honorably. So Psalm 26 testifies the importance of the gathered congregation as evidence of inner regeneration, shall I say salvation again. Let's bring this context home. Easy. We can bring this to ourselves. Our manner and posture of worship absolutely matters. Absolutely matters. If you, if you, think, it, if you think it matters a lot less than I do, I, I do invite you to come visit with me afterwards. Let's hash that out. Grab an elder. Grab Kevin. Attach this out. <laughs> but our, our worship and, and how we actually interate, uh, inter, interact and work to glorify the Lord when we're gathered certainly matters. It begs the questions, how are we to behave? How are we to sing? How are we to pray? How are we to speak? How are we to take the Lord's Supper? How are we to baptize? We take them very seriously. 
Why? Because it's very important to the Lord as we see in this positive manner in Psalm 26 as an evidence of your regeneration. There's examples in the Bible of how important this is from a a very negative perspective, a consequential perspective. I'm going to throw to you 2 Samuel chapter 6, not to discourage you, just just to encourage the importance of what we do together. That's the story of Uzzah. I remember Uzzah, poor Uzzah. Don't you pity him? I remember the story where the, the ark of the Lord was, was in Shiloh. This never supposed to be in Shiloh. It was, it was really, it was abuse of the, of, the, of the ark. Can we call it ark abuse? It was ark abuse that was ever in Shiloh. And so God was blessing Shiloh, and what does David decide to go do? We're going to go get that ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. So they're bringing it back. And and how are they bringing it back? I remember? Yeah, Yeah, a bunch of cows. Cows are dragging it in a cart. Okay, haven't haven't read the old law in the last few months, but, you know, they're supposed to have some long poles, right? Big old long poles, maybe half the size of this room. Big old long poles. Only carried by priests. You don't touch that ark. You do not touch that ark. They knew these things. And what did they do? They came before the Lord in a very, very, very unholy manner. In an unworthy manner, they had that ark drugged by, by a cart with some cows. And sure enough, that thing's tipping over, as most things do, that you're dragging with some cows. And poor Uzzah goes over there to put it back in place. What's he do? Drops down dead. I mean, it disturbed everybody. David was distraught over how this happened. But was Uzzah guilty? Sure, but who's guilty? All of them. David was guilty. The priests were guilty. They were guilty. Okay, I'm not trying to be overdramatic here. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen anybody drop dead lately from anything we've done around here. Uh, but, but the whole point is to just see the importance of the gathered church. The importance that it should place in our lives of doing things as biblically as we can. And obeying God at the best that we can. Unity in corporate worship and in our elements. So David felt that his manner of conduct of corporate worship was important, but also a proof. His conduct was a proof of his salvation. Something we should consider for ourselves in light of Psalm 26. When we're looking for assurance of our salvation, okay, our inner being, our social context, but also our worship context. Where are we at in our gathered church? And now after David has conversed with God about his evidence of integrity, his evidence of regeneration, now we see David make a plea to God. What does he plead for? David pleads for salvation. Back to your notes. David pleads for salvation, verse 9. So back to our bookends. We finally got around back to it. If you're still with me, we're back to the front. We see the plea in verse 1 and 9 and 11. Let's read 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. It makes me curious if 
David is actually maybe, I'm just, I'm going to speculate. Okay, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Spurgeon uh, speculate. I'll let Henry, Matthew Henry speculate, so I'm going to speculate now. I wonder if he's identifying with Abraham here just a little bit. So story in Genesis 18, you all remember the story. Abraham's talking to the Lord, and they're talking about Sodom. And Sodom's going to be judged. And what promise does Abraham secure from God regarding Sodom? If there is ten. If there's ten righteous people, he will not destroy the city. Well, as the story goes, was there ten righteous people? There wasn't ten. But who did God miraculously save? Three. He miraculously saved Lot and he miraculously saved his two daughters. Obviously, Lot and his daughters, they have hideous imperfections recorded in Scripture for eternity. However, how comforting it is that God will save a sinner as wretched as Lot, as wretched as his daughters, might I be so bold to say as wretched as a man like David or wretched like me or you? Don't misinterpret 20, Psalm 26. David's not a man, he, he does not believe he can save himself based on his deeds or on his own righteousness. No, consider the quick reminder, David's own sin and his posture towards it to God. Flip the page, Psalm 32, starting verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David does not pretend in Scripture to be perfect. He acknowledges he's more like a wretch. And in his confession, in his repentance and molding and change, he finds forgiveness and then we find beautiful psalms like Psalm 26, where we see that confidence of David. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful how the sins of David, sins that are embarrassing. Can't really even, you don't want to read about them, you don't want to speak of them. Probably don't want to explain that to your children until they're a certain age where they can understand it. Yet here we can see his confidence is being renewed by God. And that renewal came from being forgiven. My sin, your sin, isn't it embarrassing? Wouldn't we be shamed like David if we threw it up here on public display for everybody to consider it and witness it? Yeah, but even though our histories are probably kind of similar and vile to some of these characters in the Bible, we have a Savior. Oh, praise the Lord. His name is Jesus. He fulfilled this psalm to perfection, 
having moral perfection, social perfection, and worship perfection, being united to him in his death and resurrection, we can own Psalm 26 as our own. We can own Psalm 26 as inviting God to prove us because we are in Christ and we can join Christ and here join David in the confidence that God will honor this verse 9 request to not be swept away in judgment but to be redeemed. Let's fast forward millennia. This thing that David is asking for, there's somebody who actually confirms this promise. And this is Christ. In Matthew 13, he tells a parable about this. It goes something like this. They're going to they're plant the field. They're going to fill it full of wheat. And the attendants, the servants, are expecting the wheat to be perfect, glorious, bring it into the barn. Who are they supposed to be? That's the believers, right? That's God's people. We sowed the field. We're going to gather it and bring it into the barn. But what do the servants see? They see, they see some weeds. They see some weeds. They're scandalized. The workers. They tell the master, Master, there's, there's weeds in this field. Should we go and pluck them out? What do we see the master? How does he respond? It's a very interesting response. Is he says, no, right? Let them grow together. And then at the end of the harvest, we're going to get the weeds and we're going to burn them. We're going to get the harvest. We're going to bring the wheat and we're going to put it in my barn. But what's the very interesting point, at least to me, is he said, wait, we are not going to pluck these weeds right now, lest we accidentally pluck one of the wheat with it. Unacceptable. God will not allow that to happen. God will not sweep his people into judgment. We see that all the way back where he saved three people in Sodom. He saved three sinners in Sodom, but they were his people. And he saved them. At the end, it's going, to be, it's going to be a crowd. And he will lose no one. David is essentially asking for a promise that Christ, and here in Matthew, later confirms similar to how he dealt with Lot. This promise of God that he's not going to sweep away his people is an anchor promise. I'm going to call it an anchor promise. If a theologian has that word, I'll give it to him. I just made it up. It's an anchor promise that we can anchor ourselves to. This, sh- this should be essential to our worldview. He will not sweep away those who are in Christ. He will preserve those who are in His Son, Jesus, into and unto eternal life. And those who are outside of Christ, let's just use David's words here. There will be a sweeping away by the wrath of the Almighty God. Don't we have a great conclusion? Check verse 12. Yeah, throw your eyes on verse 12. What a great conclusion. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. So that's your, if you're taking notes, great conclusion. Conclusion. The analogy is not real difficult. We can think of several, right? Level ground. I can think of several right off the head, right off, uh, right off the mind. You know, if you're going to build a house, build a sanctuary, what do you need? Level ground. When we were kind of looking at some land, we moved out this way, we'd look at an empty lot. Some of them we thought, wow, to get that thing level, that's going to be a big old bulldozer and a whole lot of money. 
because you need that level ground. Or how about our, we have a lot of pilots here. Can you imagine landing a plane and that ground's not level? They say a pilot, his takeoffs need to match his landings, right? That would be trouble. Might get off. So let me just use one of my analogies to, to bring this home that, that, I, that I, I deal with every day in the clinic. As, as we get older, what are some, you know, we're thinking eighth, ninth decade here. What, what are some of the things that happen? The muscles get smaller, right? The reactions, not, not so quick. Maybe there's a little neuropathy in the feet where when the foot is walking, it can't feel where the ground is as well as it used to. What about your balance center? Balance may not be as good as it used to be. Quickly fall off. What's the risk? I've, I've got lots of, of older patients. Y'all don't start looking around. I didn't call anybody old here. Um, Many of whom might have heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, all kinds of things. That these things happen, can happen young, but particularly the farther we go, the more we start accumulating. Um, what happens? What, what's the most dangerous thing acutely? What could change their life today or even take their life today? Often it's not the heart, it's not the lungs, it's not the kidney, it's none of that stuff, not the skin problem. It's actually the fall risk. Did y'all know that? It's the fall risk. It's huge. Break the wrist, break the shoulder. If you break, break the hip, you know, a hip fracture is very dangerous. Not that day, but three months from now, it's just a dangerous thing. Or even hit your head, get a brain bleed, and that might be the last day all over a fall. What do we need? What gives us confidence in moving forward, placing one foot in front of the other, and allowing us to, you know, take our eyes off, even off our feet where we can even look up and look around and enjoy what's around us. It's that confidence of level ground. So important. The dangers, the obstacles are gone. We can rest, we can exist, we can literally move forward when we have level ground. David absolutely spiritualizes this picture here with level ground. Pick your scenario, I picked mine but he absolutely spiritualizes that this level ground is an incredible spiritual blessing. As our Savior said in the Gospel of John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray this day that Psalm 26 could be and would be ours. That we would look to Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of its integrity, and is also the promise keeper of our redemption and our need for grace. May we cling to Him, may we be found in Him, and may we go forward from Him, from here, in and with His confidence. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.